Welcome. My name is Larissa van den Herik and I'm a professor of public international law at the Grotius Center for International Legal Studies at Leiden University. This lecture is about international criminal law and domestic courts. International criminal law is vitally dependent on courts for its articulation, perhaps more than other areas of international law, such as use ad bellum or in, in, uh, environmental law. Of course, political bodies such as the Security Council and the General Assembly also and increasingly use the language of international criminal law um, for political purposes. But ultimately, and in a technical sense, only courts, international courts and domestic courts alike, can apply international criminal law vis-à-vis -vis individuals with binding legal consequences. The essence of criminal law is, after all, that the commission of certain behaviour by a specific individual is being condemned after following a meticulously regulated procedure which is geared towards guaranteeing the rights of the defence. By now, we have come to appreciate that the ICC, the International Criminal Court, the first permanent International Criminal Court, the great icon, in a way, of international criminal law, uh, in fact plays a rather peripheral role in terms of actual cases that are being litigated there. The value of this institution lies more in the shadow that it casts beyond its own sphere of operation. And so by now, we have come to realize that domestic courts are in fact the essential and crucial authorities of international criminal law. Therefore, the aim of this lecture is to reflect upon the role that international criminal courts play within the greater system of international criminal law, and also secondly, to look at the implementation and application of international criminal law by domestic courts, and then thirdly, to look at the, the contribution of domestic courts to the creation and further development of the law. But before we address these three themes, first a preliminary word on the concept of international criminal law, what do we mean with this concept, and the concept of domestic courts. International criminal law is firstly a design, an institutional design of international courts, and secondly, international criminal law is a body of substantive norms, which can be implemented and applied at various levels, by both international and domestic courts. The substantive norms include a crime definition, which criminalizes and prescribes certain behavior, and it includes modes of liability, which are distinct forms of perpetratorship, direct and indirect perpetratorships, which link one individual to a specific crime. So then the concept of domestic courts. When we speak about domestic courts, it is important to realize two things. Firstly, that this is not a unitary concept. And secondly, that international criminal law can play a different role in different settings of domestic jurisdictions. So firstly, in relation to the concept of domestic courts, we have to differentiate between civil courts and military courts. And we also have to distinguish between different levels in which courts operate within a domestic system of courts. So you have then always district courts, you have appeal courts, and you have, of course, supreme or constitutional courts. A further phenomenon that muddles the concept of domestic courts is the so-called notion of hybrid courts. Are those separate categories of courts, or are they domestic courts in disguise, or are they actually international courts? As always, different views exist on this matter. Some people argue that certain features can internationalize a court, 
such as the application of international law or the presence of international judges or other forms of support of the international community. In my view, a more compelling distinguishing factor is the constituent legal basis of a court. So in that sense, a court is either principally international or domestic, depending on the origin. It is true that the idea of hybridity comes with certain descriptive virtues and there may be different shades of grey, different forms of international and domestic courts, but ultimately these differences do not influence the legal status of the court per se, as being either international or domestic. And so the question whether a court is principally domestic or international is just intrinsically binary, depending on the legal origin. Now, this discussion on hybrid courts and their uh, uh, status as international or domestic is relevant to the extent that it may bear consequences on questions, for instance, of immunity and state cooperation. Most notable, perhaps as an example, we can refer to the case of Charles Taylor before the Special Court for Sierra Leone, where he invoked immunity. And then in a decision in 2004, the court had to identify its own character in a way, its identity as being either international or domestic. Well, in this decision of 2004, the Special Court for Sierra Leone characterized itself as an international court, precisely because its legal basis was an agreement between the United Nations and Sierra Leone. So this court indeed, as we see it, functioned outside the legal court uh, structure of Sierra Leone. It was a separate entity, so it was not a domestic court. Similarly, questions were raised regarding the legal status of the Special Tribunal for Lebanon, which also is ultimately an international court in light of the fact that the Security Council resolution uh, established it, underlies its creation. In contrast, the Iraqi High Criminal Court, which was established to prosecute Saddam Hussein, was part of the Iraqi legal system. And then we also have the extraordinary African chambers, which were established specifically to try the former president of Chad, uh, Habde, for torture and crimes against humanity. And these chambers were established pursuant to a demand articulated in an agreement between the African Union and Senegal, but within a Senegalese structure. So principally, this is domestic court with perhaps some international features, such as an international president. Now, other examples of domestic uh, hybrid courts with international features are the extraordinary chambers of uh, Cambodia, in the court of Cambodia, and the war crimes chamber of uh, Bosnia-Herzegovina. So in some we see there are many shades of grey, but within an ultimately binary structure. So after these words on the concept of domestic courts, I come to my uh, second point, namely that at the domestic scene, international criminal law is invoked by different domestic courts in different settings. What do I mean with this? Of course, primarily it is criminal domestic courts which engage with international criminal law when they prosecute individuals on the basis of direct or domesticated international crime definitions. But international criminal law can also play a role in civil proceedings, have, for instance, tort uh, proceedings or reparation proceedings. And in this context, we can think of the Alien Tort Claims Act in the United States, uh, but also other reparation claims that have been made against states. Finally, international criminal law can come up in administrative proceedings at the domestic level because of the connection that exists between international criminal law and international refugee law. We can think of the exclusion clause of Article 1F of the 1951 Refugee Convention, 
which excludes from protection those individuals for whom there are serious reasons to believe that they have committed a crime against peace, a crime against humanity or a war crime. And this clause can be applied by domestic authorities when dealing with an application for refugee status and then subsequently it can be tested by a domestic court. So we see a great variety of courts in terms of level and in terms of area of domestic law and that is of course directly relevant for something that we will discuss later in this lecture, namely the creation of international law by domestic courts. So to conclude these preliminary remarks, we now know that the concept of domestic courts covers in fact a whole spectrum of different entities and we also know that international criminal law at the domestic level is invoked in different settings and for different reasons. So then we will proceed to our three themes, uh, which are the role of domestic courts in the greater system of international criminal justice, the implementation and application of international criminal law at the domestic level, and then the contribution of domestic courts to the further development of international criminal law and perhaps even the creation of international criminal law. So uh, the role of domestic courts within the greater system of, of international criminal justice. International criminal law emerged as a new area of international law in the context of the law of war. And this was effectively after the Second World War. Then, all throughout the Cold War, international criminal law lay, as we say, dormant, largely dormant. And we have only a handful of cases which emerged uh, in jurisdictions such as Canada, France, uh, Israel, with the Fintech case, Touvier, Barbie, Eichmann, of course. Uh, but those are only sporadic cases, in a sense. And then only in the 1990s, we had developments which led to the, what we call the awakening of international criminal law. We also say the renaissance, the rebirth of international criminal law. And then we can identify the Security Council perhaps as uh, the midwife of international criminal law, because it was a Security Council which established the two ad hoc tribunals under Chapter 7 of the UN Charter, the ICTY, the Yugoslav Tribunal, and uh, the Rwanda Tribunal. And those were established as enforcement mechanism to address a given threat to peace. So again, international criminal law was used in connection with matters of peace and security. However, and this is of importance for our topic of today, the underlying understanding of the ad hoc tribunals um, was that they had to deliver what domestic courts could not, justice. And in fact, it's true that the years of the Cold War had indeed shown effectively that domestic courts did not assume their responsibility uh, and they did not act as the main protagonists of international criminal law for the delivery of justice. And therefore, the ad hoc tribunals were at the time granted with primacy over domestic jurisdictions. So the 1990s became the era of belief in international criminal law, international courts, universal jurisdiction. However, Fairly soon, and despite the establishment of the International Criminal Court, um, the enthusiasm for prosecution by international agents muted. And it was replaced by an intuition that perhaps imperfect, but local justice might bear more fruits uh, in terms of transition, reconstruction, and perhaps even reconciliation, even if perhaps that's quite an overly demanding ideal notion in the immediate uh, aftermath of a conflict. But we see that international criminal law emerged as an area of law with its own international courts, international institutions that were initially meant to be substitute for domestic courts. Yet gradually, 
over the last decade, a shift in thinking occurred um, and gradually international criminal law became to be envisaged predominantly as a tool precisely for um, domestic courts to overcome legal hurdles within their own legal structures, such as statutory limitations, amnesties, and to some extent immunities. So in other words, international criminal law was designed initially to ensure enforcement at the international level, um, whereas today it serves rather as a mechanism that enables and stimulates enforcement at the domestic level. And this also reflects the greater contemporary belief that it is domestic courts which hold the future for the enterprise of international criminal justice. And this belief has also been translated in the ICC's complementarity principle, which entails that the ICC will only come into play when domestic courts are unable or unwilling. So then, let's look at the implementation and application effectively of international criminal law at the domestic level. For the domestic level to take up the challenge, you know, uh, to, be the, 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 uh, to, to be the main protagonist of international criminal law, to take up this challenge, to fulfill the expectations that are now being placed on their shoulders, it must firstly put in place an adequate legal framework. From the domestic perspective, a state can engage with international law in a variety of ways. And, uh, Particularly, we can identify two ways in which a state can implement a rule of international law, namely through incorporation or uh, transformation. Now, incorporation takes place through a rule of reference, which makes the international rule itself part of the national legal order. And transformation is the enactment of a national law that mirrors the international law. And the latter is the more common way for implementing, for instance, the rule of the Rome Statutes which are, of course, directly relevant for our discussion. Now, we can also engage with the question of implementation from the international perspective. Concretely, then, the question is, what are the exact international obligations for states regarding prosecution? And what does this presuppose in terms of implementation? The general duty to prosecute flows from human rights obligations and has been developed in particular by the Inter-American Court of Human Rights. In addition, different treaties have different schemes in this respect. For instance, the Genocide Convention only placed an obligation to prosecute on the territorial state, whereas the 1984 Convention Against Torture prescribes universal jurisdiction. Similarly, the Geneva Conventions differentiate between an obligatory regime of universal jurisdiction for the grave breaches and a less demanding instruction for other violations of international humanitarian law. Then, what about the ICC statute, which is, after all, the most central and encompassing existing international criminal law treaty? Well, the ICC statute contains specific obligations for state parties to enact legislation that facilitate and enable cooperation with the court, and this we see it in part 9 of the statute. However, remarkably, it does not contain a similar explicit obligation for states to incorporate the international crime definitions in the domestic codes or to vest their court with universal jurisdiction over these crimes. Such an obligation can, with some goodwill, be read into the preamble or we can say that it flows from the object and purpose of the ICC statute. More concretely, domestic implementation efforts are of course en uh, encouraged by the complementarity regime.
after all, the ICC has said, is premised on the idea that the court is complementary to domestic legal orders. And they will only step in when domestic courts are unable or unwilling to act. So states should just um, create the adequate legal framework to preempt such interferences by the court. And it is on this basis that the complementarity regime can be understood as enshrining an implicit obligation to implement. Or perhaps we can better say it encourages states to implement. But this implicit obligation or encouragement does in any case not embody a duty to copy-paste the crime definitions of the ICC. States have some discretion in this respect and slight variations are permitted. Of course, when implemented crime definitions deviate in a significant way from the mainstream international definitions, they might lose the prerogatives that are attached to international crimes, such as non-application of statutory limitations or the accepted use of universal jurisdiction. The implications of the complementarity regime are thus, to some extent, discretionary and open-ended. In the court's early practice, complementarity has been understood in a very narrow sense, with the what we call same conduct, same person test, which was developed particularly in the first case, in the Lubanga case, Katanga and the Kenya situation. However, even within the context of this test, there is still discretion for states in terms of labeling, and arguably it allows ordinary crime prosecution, as long as these prosecution for ordinary crimes rather than international crime labor, as long as these prosecutions concern the same conduct and the same person. Now, such an understanding would render this implicit and derived obligation to implement rather minimal. In any event, and regardless of our precise appreciation of the complementarity regime, it must be noted that not all state parties to the Rome Statute have been truly forthcoming in implementing uh, the Rome Statute. A perhaps even more notable trend is that many state parties that do implement tend to implement only the crime catalogue, and then subsequently they attach their own register of modes of liability. And sometimes they even add new modes of liability, such as, for instance, corporate responsibility, which we don't have under the ICC statute, but we do have it in certain uh, states. It still remains to be seen how well international crimes can actually indeed be blended with domestic modes of liability, and how this then will impinge in turn on the system of international criminal law as such. But alternatively, some states can also choose to not only implement the crime definitions, but also to implement fully their own provisions on modes of liability. These we find in Article 25 and 28 of the ICC statute. And this decision was made, for instance, by Kenya, which implemented the ICC statute in a way in reaction to prosecutions by the ICC. However, such a decision to implement also the mode of liability raises serious questions of legality, in particular if we do it after the fact. And perhaps beyond that, it also raises questions of expertise. More generally even, the issue will be, the question will come up, how such an incorporation relates to, or perhaps even contaminates, the domestic regime on modes of liability in a state like Kenya. So how do these two systems of modes of liability then coexist and, 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 and relate to each other? In a similar vein, we see that generally ICC procedural law is not transposed to domestic settings. So normally, 
the ICC crimes are implemented in domestic orders with the idea that investigations and prosecutions will take place within the regular domestic procedural legal framework of the state concerned. So the ICC rules of procedure and evidence only guide ICC prosecutions, whereas domestic courts are and remain guided and regulated by their own procedure. So there's no such thing as international criminal procedural law, which exists independently from a court, from an international court. But of course, it may be that on the long run, certain general principles can be discerned or identified that apply in general to international crime prosecutions, even if they take place at the domestic setting. So then finally, let us conclude with some words on the role of domestic courts as contributors or perhaps even de facto creators of international criminal law. Domestic courts can be influential in law creating processes in two interrelated ways. Firstly, by offering authoritative interpretations of treaty norms. And secondly, by contributing to state practice and thus to the formation of custom. Now we will focus here on the contribution of domestic courts to the formation of custom. And to this end, uh, we will make first some general remarks on the role of custom in international criminal law. The 1990s were peak time for the role of custom in international criminal law. And it is actually impossible really to overestimate the influence of the use of custom in that era. At the time, Custom was the principal device used in particular by the ICTY, the Yugoslav Tribunal, and they did so for a variety of purposes. First of all, of course, since ICL, international criminal law, was hardly codified at the time, custom was officially used to address legality concerns. But in actual fact, it was used more as a vehicle of intense law development and creation, both in relation to the development of crime, the definition of crime, as well as the mode of liability. With the ICC coming into being, we have arrived at what we can call a codified moment, which greatly reduces, in theory, the possibilities of creative use of custom. And indeed, Article 10 of the ICC statute clearly separates between the ICC's regime and customary international law. It allows for the further development of customary international law beyond the statute, but the primary law to be applied within the setting of the ICC regime is codified law. And in this context of the ICC regime, the role of custom has mainly become to serve as a secondary interpretational role. And indeed, if we look at, for instance, Article 21b, uh, 21.1b of the ICC statute, this allows for such a potential role of custom, which in particular actually enables the ICC to draw on practice from non-state parties. And on the base of Article 21.1c, the ICC can also directly rely on the interpretation of domestic courts of ICC state parties. So in that latter scenario, the ICC doesn't need to rely on the fiction of custom any longer. Arguably, therefore, the role of custom in international criminal law should be on a decline, okay, with the prevalent role of the ICC in international criminal law. However, other tribunals, such as the Yugoslav Tribunal, the Special Tribunal for Lebanon, continue to refer to customary international law, and they sometimes even consider that the ICC statute should not be taken as reflective of customary international law. 
And this therefore raises the spectrum of fragmentation within international criminal law, which perhaps goes beyond our current discussion. Outside the setting of international criminal courts and tribunals, customary international criminal law plays a role in domestic proceedings, as for instance in the Alien Tort Claims Act of the US. But possibly also in cases concerning state responsibility related to international crimes or in the work of commissions of inquiry. We can also note that international criminal law plays an increasing role in human rights litigation before uh, human rights courts, such as the European Court of Human Rights. And so the question arises how we should appreciate the elements of custom in the context of international criminal law, and more particularly what the contribution of domestic courts can be to the formation of custom. Now, in this context, a certain number of questions need to be answered in relation to the impact and the contribution of domestic courts on the development of international criminal law. Firstly, what part of international criminal law lend themselves to an influence of domestic courts? And the issue here is really, can um, domestic practice of international criminal law, and more particularly mode of liability, be evidence of the development of international mode of liability? And what about procedural law? We already mentioned it. Is each court indeed, is, to some extent, a self-contained regime with its own procedure, or can there be, is there room for a certain cross-fertilization? And a second question in this regard is what part of domestic practice can be deemed state practice? Is the opinion of a district court or even a court of appeal technically state practice for the purposes of customary international law? What we see from the use of custom by the ICTY and other tribunals is that there is a certain risk of over-reliance on isolated cases and sometimes even decisions that have been overturned on appeal later to determine practice. Finally, an interesting question is the following. Should decisions of criminal courts be more directly relevant for the formation of custom than decisions of other courts, such as administrative or civil courts? Do we have to differentiate there? Perhaps we should, since the latter, the, in particular the administrative courts, may engage with international criminal law in a more flexible way than criminal courts tend to. Or another question which has similar implications is, do courts, which operate on the base of universal jurisdiction, treat international criminal law differently than courts which operate on the base of territorial jurisdiction? And if so, does it have, or should it have, an impact on their perceived role as law developers or law creators? These are, to some extent, open questions for now, and they may receive answers in the time to come. However, it can also be that rather than through the vehicle of custom, ICL, international criminal law, is going to continue to develop through a different track in the future. Given the complex system of international criminal law today, as we have set it out in this lecture, we have different institutions at different levels, in different settings, invoking and applying international criminal law, we might need to arrive at a different model of law development, we might to conceptualize a more diffuse dialogue model between these various judges in international criminal law, both at the domestic and the international level, whereby these judges, they take inspiration from each other without necessarily always construing this in terms of the formal sources of international law. 
And in this regard, we can note a certain academic development, which perhaps can foster such a, uh, a development, which is, for instance, the creation of online databases, which collect and analyze relevant decisions, in particular decisions of domestic courts on international criminal law, such as the Max Planck database, we have the OUP database on international law and domestic courts. And such databases may really be helpful in fostering judicial dialogue. They also enable all those interested in the application of international criminal law by domestic courts to read and study concrete cases and to track developments. I very much hope that this lecture will encourage you to do so. And I thank you for your attention and for watching. Thank you.